Hello, and welcome to the History of Rome. Appendix 2, Episode 3, The Fiery War. So last time, we wrapped up with my harsh but more than justified condemnation of Servius Sulpicius Galba for the massacre of the Lusitanians in 150 BC. Now, Galba may have been able to counter his critics down the road, if he had, say, been able to point to the end of hostilities in further Spain. He might have been able to say, yes, it was brutal, but it was necessary to end the war, and look, it's been peaceful ever since. But that is the opposite of what happened. As I said at the end of my series on the Haitian Revolution, yesterday's civilian becomes tomorrow's insurgent after today's atrocity, and that's how it went in further Spain. Just a few years after Galba defeated the Lusitanians once and for all, the Romans were dragged back into an even larger conflict against an even more implacable group of rebels led by one of the best generals the ancient Iberian Peninsula ever produced. So Galba failed on both moral and practical grounds. And in fact, he failed on practical grounds because he failed on moral grounds. And when you compare and contrast Galba to, say, Tiberius Gracchus the Elder or Marcus Claudius Marcellus, both of whom delivered durable peace in Hispania thanks to a firm commitment to honor and integrity, well, the lessons of history are pretty clear. Now, before we resume hostilities in further Spain in 148 BC, I do want to quickly remind everybody where we're at in the larger sweep of Roman history. Because the 150s had seen the return of conflict not just on the Iberian Peninsula, but also in Macedonia and Greece and North Africa. So while the events of this episode are unfolding, remember that it is at this same moment that the Senate will be sending large armies east into Macedonia and Greece and south into North Africa. All those campaigns would of course culminate in 146 BC with the double sacking of Carthage and Corinth that being the moment that the Romans finally decided to treat the Greeks and North Africans the same way they had been treating the people of the Iberian Peninsula for the last 50 years, as subjects, not neighbors. So as I said last time, a few Lusitanian warriors managed to get away from Galba's slaughter in 150 and spread the word of Roman treachery. And while there were no active hostilities in further Spain for the next two years, that was not because hostilities were over. It was just because the Lusitanians were regrouping. By the spring of 148, an army of about 10,000 gathered to resume the resistance to the Romans, who were now more hated than ever. The local Roman commanders, believing that they had slaughtered their way to victory, were caught totally off guard. And when they sent messages back to Rome begging for reinforcements, they were told that there were almost none to spare. Like I said, this is the same year that the Romans are pouring men and resources into the final siege of Carthage, Another minor rebellion in further Spain paled in comparison to fighting the Carthaginians. So the praetor, named Gaius Vitilius, was forced to make do with the 10,000 or so men he had on hand. And to Vitilius's credit, he almost nipped this new rebellion in the bud. He maneuvered the Lusitanian army into a confined dead end, a narrow space bounded by rough hills and steep cliffs. With the legions blocking the only sure way in or out, the Lusitanian leaders were preparing to surrender, when one of their number stepped forward and said, if you elect me as your supreme leader and obey my every command, then I can get us out of this. Trust me. Not wanting to surrender, they took this guy up on his offer. And thus did Viriatus become the leader of the rebel Lusitanians. So who is Viriatus? We know next to nothing about him before his appearance here in 148 BC. Just snippets 
which themselves are no doubt based on secondhand guesses from third-hand accounts. When he took over the Lusitanian Rebellion, Viriatus was probably no younger than his late 20s, but no older than his early 40s. He is described as coming from one of the coastal Lusitanian communities, and identified as a shepherd rather than, say, a farmer or a fisherman. But we cannot get ahead of ourselves and jump feet first into the attractive myth of a poor shepherd boy who rises to lead his people to freedom. To even have a seat at the table, Viriatus must have come from the ruling caste of his local community. His occupation of shepherd probably meant that his family owned large herds or flocks. The skills Viriatus would have learned while working this family ranch, how to ride horses, handle weapons, and lead men, would have been self-consciously pursued as training to be a warrior, which is what a young man of his place and rank would have seen as his principal role in the tribe. Viriatus took up arms early against the Romans. He fought in the recently concluded Lusitanian War and was among those very few survivors to escape Galba's massacre in 150. At least, Appian says Viriatus was a survivor. Who knows how literally we should take that claim. Appian was, after all, writing some 400 years later in Alexandria, Egypt, which is quite a ways away, both in time and space. But whether Viriatus was literally a survivor, or merely a warrior who lived through that first war, he was definitely among those who picked his sword back up when the Lusitanian Rebellion resumed two years later. As to his personality and character, Viriatus gets the full treatment as the virtuous noble savage. This is a character type that pops up a lot in Roman historical literature, especially the stuff written during the Imperial Age. Tacitus was big on this kind of thing. So Viriatus was famous for his unflappable courage, his feats of physical strength and agility. He had no formal education and is instead described as being tutored by common sense. He had a reputation for blunt, honest speaking. He ate sparingly. He slept little. He never shirked his duties. He was generous with spoils. He never took more than the same equal share as his comrades and showed almost no interest in gold, silver, or other precious finery. Diodorus, who was writing between 60 and 30 BC, so much closer to Viriatus than Appian was, but still a hundred years later, well, he says that Viriatus had many pithy sayings attributed to him of which one survives for us. Quote, A poor and humble position in life leads to self-sufficiency and love of justice, but wealth has as its companions greed and injustice. Now, this all makes Viriatus the perfect foil for the Romans. His simple honesty in contrast to their eloquent duplicity, his rigorous austerity in contrast to their lazy luxuries, now, I'm not beyond believing that these portrayals of Viriatus were based on some grain of truth, but these are all familiar tropes that we find among later Greek and Roman historians whose principal object was not necessarily to render an accurate picture of a historical figure, so much as take subtle shots at the debased character of contemporary imperial Rome. Now, what does seem to be beyond question is that Viriatus was a tactical and strategic genius— Otherwise, he would not have been able to maintain a rebellion against the Romans for a full decade. He displayed this genius from the very first moment he stepped forward and asked his comrades to trust him. Once the other Lusitanian leaders elected Viriatus their supreme leader, he laid down a plan of action. It was true that the Lusitanians were currently trapped as a group. But the hills and cliffs against which they were pinned were riddled with goat paths leading in all directions that could be navigated by individuals or small groups moving in single file. So the next morning, 
Aviriatus ordered all the Lusitanians to line up, apparently to give battle to the Romans. When the legions formed up to meet this challenge, Aviriatus gave the signal, and 9,000 of the 10,000 Lusitanians behind him broke in all directions. They swarmed up through the hills and cliffs every which way they could. To cover this buzzing exodus, Viriatus himself and the remaining 1,000 hand-picked horsemen rode straight at the Roman lines, forcing the confused legionaries into a defensive crouch. The 9,000 Lusitanians got away scot-free, and as soon as their escape was made, Viriatus and his horsemen broke off their runs at the Roman line and themselves raced up through the hills. Just like that, the whole Lusitanian army was gone. No casualties are reported. The Lusitanians had trusted Viriatus with their lives, and he had delivered. From that point on, nobody questioned that he was their supreme leader. Viriatus cemented his reputation for military cunning just a few days later. The praetor, Vitilius, robbed of his victory, finally learned where the Lusitanians had regrouped and ordered his legions in pursuit. But while on the road, Viriatus used his superior knowledge of the local terrain and sprang an ambush killing as many as 4,000 Romans before the legions could retreat. Among the dead, Vetilius himself. Described by Appian as, quote, old and fat, Vetilius was captured by one of the Lusitanian warriors who did not know who Vetilius was, but could certainly not believe that an old and fat man could be very important, and so he killed him on the spot. The remaining 6,000 Romans holed up in a fortified allied city, they spent the remainder of 147 holed up and refused to go anywhere until they got some reinforcements. Thank you very much. The next year, the Senate did send 10,000 additional reinforcements under a praetor whose name I won't trouble you with because all he managed to do with these reinforcements was fall into the same pattern that Mummius had first established, the pattern we talked about in our last episode. First, a successful initial attack followed by a disorganized pursuit of the Lusitanians. Only this time, Viriatus is credited with pulling off this maneuver on purpose, and as soon as he had overextended the Roman line, he wheeled around and smashed right back into them, costing the Romans another 4,000 men. After this victory, Viriatus led his men north across the Tagus River, where he established a permanent base on what is called Venus's Mountain, wherever the heck that is, I certainly can't find any direct modern point of reference. The Romans made one stab at trying to dislodge him from this mountain base, but they were easily repulsed and suffered further casualties. Venus's Mountain would be the home base for Viriatus for the next five years. The Romans retreated, with their tails tucked between their legs. So as often happened, repeated failures by praetors meant that it was time to send in a consul. So in 145, the Senate sent consul Quintus Fabius Maximus Aemilianus. If that Aemilianus sounds familiar, it's because Maximus Aemilianus is the blood brother of Scipio Aemilianus. Both of them were the natural sons of Aemilius Paulus, the victor of the Battle of Pydna, but both of them had been adopted for political reasons into other families. Scipio Aemilianus went into the Scipione, Maximus Aemilianus went into the Fabii. So, just to keep things simple, I am going to call this guy Maximus, but remember he's Maximus Aemilianus, and he is Scipio Aemilianus' brother. Got it? Good. Now, despite the family connection, when Maximus raised conscripts to go to further Spain, 
He deliberately did not try to use his brother's veterans who had just come back from the Third Punic War. The repeated complaints about pressing the same men back into service over and over again had been heard, at least by some Roman leaders. What this meant, though, is that when Maximus arrived in further Spain with 15,000 men and another 2,000 cavalry, they were pretty raw recruits. Given the unbroken run of success for Viriatus and the Lusitanians, Maximus did not take his men immediately into battle, and instead he spent almost the entirety of 145 training his men to get them ready for a campaign the following year. Viriatus tried to goad Maximus into battle, but to no avail, even as Viriatus and his army pretty much now had the run of all of further Spain. By the spring of 144, though, Maximus and his men were ready. They went on the offensive, and for the first time, the Romans had some success against Viriatus. Maximus fanned out his lines and methodically pushed Viriatus back across the Tagus River to his mountain base. After delivering the first good news out of further Spain for quite a while, Maximus retired to the interior city of Cordoba for the winter of 144-143. But the Roman success wound up causing its own problems. Facing stiffer Roman resistance for the first time, Viriatus decided that things would go quite a bit easier if there were more fires for the Romans to put out. So he made contact with the Celtiberian tribes that had oh so recently come to terms with Rome, terms that had been brokered by Marcellus. We're talking about the Aravaki, the Titi, and the Belli. Encouraging them to believe that a pan-Iberian uprising would mean their mutual success, these tribes broke the treaty with Rome and went back into revolt. And it is here that I will insert a long quote from Polybius that gives these conflicts the collective name, the Fiery War. Now, the Fiery War is a label sometimes attached just to Viriatus's Lusitanian War, and also it's attached just to the Celtiberian rebellions in nearer Spain. But really, it should apply to all the wars that the Romans fought on the Iberian Peninsula. Polybius says, The war between the Romans and the Celtiberians was called the Fiery War. So remarkable was the uninterrupted character of the engagements. For while wars in Greece and Asia are as a rule decided by one battle, or more rarely two, and while battles themselves are decided in a brief space of time by the result of the first attack and encounter, in this war it was just the opposite. The engagements as a rule were only stopped by darkness, the combatants refusing either to let their courage flag or to yield to bodily fatigue and ever rallying, recovering confidence, and beginning afresh. Winter indeed alone put a certain check on the process of the whole war, and on the continuous character of the regular battles, so that on the whole, if we can conceive a war to be fiery, it would be this, and no other one. So as we'll discuss next week, the Senate would send Consul Quintus Caecilius Metellus Macedonicus to combat this fresh round of fires in nearer Spain, while sending a praetor to relieve Maximus in further Spain. But this successor, whose name is disputable, and I'm also not going to trouble you with it, mostly gave away the gains that Maximus had made during the campaign of 144. So, Viriatus was once again ascendant in further Spain, and in 142 another consul gets sent to further Spain, locking in a pattern over the next couple years that saw consuls perpetually taking command in both nearer and further Spain, trying to extinguish all these fires of this fiery war. The consul sent to battle Viriatus in 142 was Quintus Fabius Maximus Servilianus. 
And if that Fabius Maximus sounds familiar, it's because, and follow along now, Servilianus was the adopted brother of Maximus Emilianus, the guy we just talked about. Servilianus was the blood son of a senator named Gnaeus Servilius Caepio, so he too was adopted into the Fabii and became Quintus Fabius Maximus Servilianus. I sometimes think the Romans do this just to confuse people trying to study their family trees. So, we are going to call him Servilianus, just to keep things simple, but don't worry, it's going to get confusing again here in a second. Servilianus showed up with two fresh legions, bringing the total Roman forces in further Spain up to about 20,000. Taking these men out on campaign, Servilianus managed to fall into our now well-worn pattern. The legions fought a pretty large battle against the Lusitanian army, they drove the Lusitanians from the field, and then ran off in disorganized pursuit. But this time there is a small twist. Instead of turning around and clobbering the Romans like always, Viriatus instead led his men on a wide circuit and came back around on the poorly defended Roman camps. The beleaguered Roman defenders of those camps were only saved thanks to the arrival of night. The next day, Servilianus ordered a retreat. The following year, however, things started to get dicey for Viriatus. His prolonged occupation of Venus's mountain was apparently now causing him supply problems, and he had to abandon it and cross the Tagus River back into further Spain proper. Just as he was being forced back into closer proximity to the Romans, Servilianus spent that same summer of 141 securing town after town and city after city. Servilianus was in fact now doing major damage to the Lusitanian cause. He captured upwards of 10,000 Lusitanian fighters and ordered the execution of some 500 senior leaders. This loss of his men, loss of his lieutenants, and loss of his secure base led Viriatus to conclude that the time may have come to broker a peace. But Viriatus wanted to make sure this peace came after a Roman defeat, not a Roman victory, to ensure that the Lusitanians got the best possible terms. In the spring of 140, Viriatus caught Servilianus, laying a siege to a city that was still holding out against the Romans. Knowing the terrain better, Viriatus harassed the legionaries into breaking off this siege, and then he maneuvered them towards some cliffs where they found themselves trapped. And this was the moment Viriatus had been looking for. Instead of crushing the trapped legions, he offered to make peace. Realizing that he was checkmated, and that this war was an intolerable drain on Roman morale and resources, Servilianus agreed to a deal. Viriatus and the Lusitanians would be granted the official status of friend of the Roman people. They would be allowed to settle on the land they currently held, and the long war would be over. So that's the end of the war, right? Haha, fat chance. One of the Senate's longest-standing traditions was to reject any treaty made in the field by a commander after a battle they had lost. We know this. We know this from the History of Rome podcast. The Romans only concluded a peace after a victory, and the requisite deditio by the enemy. And it didn't take long for them to repudiate Servilianus' treaty. Ready for the next brotherly connection of this war? Good, because Servilianus was replaced in 140 by the new consul, Gaius Servilius Caepio, who was Servilianus's natural brother. And I can promise you it's even less fun trying to explain these relationships than it is listening to me try to explain these relationships. 
Anyway, Caipio found out about the deal his brother had cut. He was furious, and he wrote back to the Senate urging them to repudiate the deal. Then he intentionally provoked Viriatus back into war. But unfortunately for Viriatus, most of his fighters had gone home after the treaty with Servilianus had been signed, and it was going to take some time to re-rally them to arms. And Caipio was coming after Viriatus hard, intent on winning the war, and then capturing or killing the great Viriatus himself. He in fact pursued the Lusitanian leader so relentlessly that Caipio's own men came to hate their general for the severity of the forced marches he kept ordering. But the end game of this war did not come on the field of battle. Still hoping to end the conflict peacefully, Viriatus sent some of his lieutenants to Caipio to find out what, if anything, could be done to get the Romans to call this off. And for the first time in all the years Viriatus had been leading the Lusitanians, his subordinates betrayed him. Capio welcomed these lieutenants, but told them there could be no peace until Viriatus was removed from the picture. If they could remove Viriatus from the picture, then not only would these subordinate lieutenants be elevated in stature as the principal friends of the Roman people, but the long war would be called off, and everyone could return to a peaceful life. To help this suggestion of betrayal go down a little easier, Caipio provided an upfront bribe, a down payment on future rewards for this immense service that they would be rendering Rome. So these guys went back to the Lusitanian camp with assassination in their hearts. It would not be an easy job. Viriatus not only slept very little, but when he did, he slept in his armor. He was also very careful about who he let in and out of his tent, but this was betrayal of the highest and closest order. These were some of Viriatus' most trusted and longest-serving comrades. So you have to think that in addition to the bribes they had been promised by Caipio, that they had come to their own conclusion that maybe the chief had become an obstacle to peace, that as long as he was around, neither he nor the Romans would quit the field. And maybe I'm just rationalizing on their behalf, but it had to have been something like that, something more than just a few trinkets. Regardless, their closeness to Viriatus was used against him. Waiting until a few minutes after the chief had gone to sleep to maximize grogginess, they burst into the tent claiming urgent business. Without ceremony or warning, they were on top of him, and they lodged a dagger in Viriatus's throat. Then they all fled, and Viriatus bled to death alone in his tent. One of the most implacable foes the Romans ever faced, and still today a national Portuguese hero, was dead. The men who committed this heinous assassination did not even find what they were hoping for. The rewards promised by Caipio never materialized, and these assassins drop out of the historical record, but presumably it was not a life of ease and plenty, as they had been hoping for. Nor did the assassination immediately end the conflict. The remaining Lusitanian rebels elected a new leader, and they all gathered together in 138 BC to make a final attempt at securing peace with the Romans from a position of strength. The Lusitanians attacked the Roman-held city of Saguntum, but were repulsed. In the aftermath of this last defeat, the Lusitanians offered what the Romans had long held would be the minimum basis for peace, a full deditio. This long and fiery field in the fiery war was now silent and black charcoal. But though he was now dead and the Lusitanians were defeated, Viriatus's legacy lived on. Because remember, back in 143, he had inspired further rebellion in nearer Spain, 
spreading fires that continued unabated long after his death. This latest round of fighting with the Celtiberians in nearer Spain would cause the Romans nothing but humiliating grief, until finally they would turn to Scipio Aemilianus to finally end the wars in Hispania once and for all. Mm -hmm. 